Well, what are all you rich folks doing here? <laughs> yeah. Um, let, me, let me just start now. Kind of my plan. I don't know how long. I haven't stood up and done this uh, lesson before. So I don't know exactly how long this is going to take. We might, I might be done in 30 minutes, which will be fine, which won't mean that the class will be done in 30 minutes. It's just what I have ready to present will be done. Because really what I, what I want to do is start a conversation. Um, or maybe I should better say get a few more voices in the conversation that I've already been a part of. Uh, a lot of it in my head, a lot of it with other people as well. Uh, but just some, some general observations, um, primarily things that I struggle with. Uh, partly as a um, uh, as an elder, partly as <coughs> just a member of this community. You know, I I have the tough job of having to live on campus in, in this godforsaken place. Kind <laughs> oh, <laughs> of somebody's got to do it. Yeah. So how do we? In my mind, wherever you are wherever God places you on this earth, there are challenges to being faithful children of God. And so this is, this is one, I think, that's sort of common, if you will, or, or uh, generally experienced. Uh, I'll, I'll start with a, a story. Many, many years ago, 20 years ago, now 21, we got to take uh, a group of students uh, to Israel as a part of a summer program. Spent uh, 10 or 11 days in Israel. And one of the days that they had planned was to go out into the desert, the area between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And there is nothing living out there. There are white rocks and there are gray rocks. <laughs> and there is white dust and brownish gray dust. And that's it. Okay? There's, there's just nothing. And, but what the what our tour guide did with that was to talk about the time that the, the Israelites were in the wilderness, where they learned to rely on God. Okay. But this sparked an interesting question from one of the young ladies in our group, and during the book, she approached me and said, "Dr. Willis, I here's my question. She said, you know, God is supposed to bless people who are faithful to Him, right? And so I go, yeah." Well, so what the Israelites learned was when they had nothing, that they could rely on God and He would bless them and they would have a whole bunch. And they learned faith through that process. Okay? So then what do you do once you have received all of the blessings? Because that's when the problems seem to start. And then you start wondering, was it really good to receive all those blessings? So it's like, you know, where, where do you want to be in, in your life? Do you want to be blessed or do you want to be struggling so you learn, learn to rely on God? Do you want to be going up or on the way down? You know, so, you understand? Yeah. So that's part of what's um, you know, been rolling around in my head for at least 20 years now, probably longer. But that, that sort of you know, conundrum that we all face. God says, if, you know, if you're struggling, if you turn to me, I will bless you. And then, boy, once you get blessed, you better watch out. 
because it's tougher for a rich person to go to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, then why did you make me wealthy? Why did you bless me so much? It's your fault. See, so how do we kind of work through that? So let me ask you a simple question, first of all. What is the difference? How would you define someone who is blessed versus someone who is spoiled? Somebody who doesn't love their money. <laughs> is blessed. Someone who doesn't love their money. Does that mean, you mean they hate their money? Meaning, where is their affection? So it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, right? All right. So, if, but if you were to look out at someone, could you tell the difference between someone who is blessed and someone who is spoiled? I'm not certain. You have to spend some time with them. You have to spend some time with them. Now, in some cases, it's easy because the difference is our grandkids are blessed. Their <laughs> are spoiled. Right? I mean, just look at the way they act. They might do the same things, but, but this is just to say it's often difficult to distinguish between blessed and spoiled. If you just look at their tax returns, they might be identical. If you look at where they live, they might be in the same communities. Right? Like the jobs they hold might might be you no know, offices right next to one another. So what's the difference between blessed and spoiled? Now we can go into stereotypes. Here, here's one that, that, that I like or it's easy. Uh, think about the movie uh, the old one of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? So remember these two? Maruka Salt. Right? She's the one, if you remember, in, the, in that, I don't know how they did in the second movie, the more recent one with Johnny Depp, but this old woman, Jean Wilder, the, this young lady, I mean, her dad had some sort of factory, and so, you know, you had to get one of those golden tickets, and what did they do? Her dad just got all of the, the people on the factory line to be opening candy bars, not to eat the candy, but to try to get one of these golden tickets, because Baruka just had to have one, and she wanted it now. Right? And so, that yeah, there's this whole song then later on. She, the, 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 what, Lisa lady, or whatever lady, golden eggs. Something like that. The, the, the squirrels are coming and polishing these things. She wants one of these right now. So we, we consider her spoiled in contrast to Charlie, who's, you know, he's, he's got a good heart. And Willie ends up choosing him to run his factory. To, you know, he's, he's passing it on to Charlie. Now, in some ways, you could go to the other three children who are also here in this story, and they are spoiled in other ways, maybe not as blatantly as Veruca, but you know, Augustus, he has to have all the chocolate that there is. Mike TV, he's got to be on, you know, on the stage all the time. So, and, so it's, a, it's not about having the wealth, it's your attitude toward these things. So here's what I'm using, this is just my kind of... Uh, uh, working definition is nowhere perfect, but just something for us to start with, and you guys can help me. All right? My reading of things, it's a matter of where your heart is, whether you're spoiled or blessed. So those who are spoiled have the sense of being entitled, have the sense of saying, because of what I've done, because of who I am, because of my character or whatever, 
I deserve what I have. Right? So what I have, yes, it's from God. It's a reward. Now, think about where that can go. If you start looking around at other people, and they don't have as much as you, you can very easily start thinking, oh, God didn't see a reason to reward. You know, and this can get bad real quick, go in the wrong direction. So, but the idea of material abundance, even the idea of um, personal gifts, talents, your ability to you know, speak well, your ability to you know, do your job, be a good administrator at work, your ability to be a, a good teacher if you're a public school teacher, any number of things that you can attribute to God's blessing. But if you think of it as, an award, as a reward, as something I worked really hard for, something like that, then you can have a tendency maybe to be spoiled. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about other ways that this is, gets played out. There's, there's a whole bunch of ideas I want to kind of lay out as we go through, and then we'll see how much time we have to, to share our own experiences and reflections on this. So you, anyway, you have that on the one hand. Blessed, rather than feeling entitled, is, yeah, you feel favored, uh, not in the sense that everything's necessarily going to go your way, but that God has given you something. It's not that you deserve to get it as pay, but that it was given to you as it's a gift. God didn't have to give it to you, but He chose to. So it's, it's a, a gift. And what's more, when you have this attitude that what you have has been given to you as a gift, it's not just as a gift for you to have fun with. That's why the way a lot of people think about blessings. Blessings are all the things I get to have fun with. Maybe even I get to show off with. But when it's a gift, in the biblical sense of a gift, a gift, it has the idea that, that God is doing something positive in the world, and if He gifts you, if He gives you something, it's so that you can participate in and contribute to the giving, the blessing that God is, is doing, right? So, um, you know, this, there, there's so many ways that this might get played out in our own life. One just real quick maybe to be thinking about is, uh, I don't know that if they do this anymore, <laughs> uh, but we used to talk about, at least when I was growing up, there was a lot of talk about, you've got to learn to be a good winner and how to be a good loser, you know, I, I went online to, to see if I could get pictures about being a good loser, and it seemed like the only thing that was that came up was Vince Lombardi saying, "You show me a good loser, I'll show you a loser." <laughs> yeah, but what? If, you know, so if you, but you have to be a good loser and a good winner. In other words, you have to have a good perspective on competitive things. Right, so something to think about. But actually, this idea goes back really all the way with the nation of Israel, all the way to Abraham. Now notice this. Notice this. Uh, we, we know that you know, at the very beginning of the story of Abraham, God talks to Abraham and says, I'm choosing you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm, I'm, you need to leave this place and go to a place I'm showing you, and here's what I'm going to do for you. Now notice what he says. He says twice. He says, what I will do for you but then also what you will do or what you will be. 
I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you can live happily ever after. So that you can kick back and enjoy the sun's rest. No, that's not what he says. He says, so that you will be a blessing. Wow. In other words, you have a role. You have a responsibility here. That's why you're blessed. You have, you have to think about how God is trying to make you a conduit, a channel to others. Right? He goes on. I will bless those. See, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's not your responsibility. That's my responsibility. But in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, I'm going to be using you uh, in that way. All right? Um, so, in, in some ways, I, I, I've talked about this passage as sort of the great commission for the people of the Old Testament. And really, for all of God's people of all time, you are being chosen. You are being blessed in order to uh, do good for others. Now, let me stop here. And there's one other thing that's really been rolling around a lot in my head the last several months, and it's kind of the, a main impetus for this. For years, at uh, my home congregation in, in Thousand Oaks, Mango Valley, over in Thousand Oaks, for years we have been talking about um, renovating, expanding our current building. We don't have enough room for our church offices. We don't have enough room for our uh, our youth group. They have to meet across the street in the youth minister's house. You know, so we've been talking about building. Well, so we're, we're finally getting in the last year. We've gotten to the point where we're ready to do this. And then I was away <laughs> over uh, serving overseas for the school last fall. And while I was away, they they formulated finally that the last pieces. And a part of that was to come up with a, uh, a slogan, if you will, for this. Now, you know, it, it sounds like what you're doing is uh, we're having a fundraising campaign, right, to expand the building. But while I was away, some crazy people there, the, the, the other elders, came up with this slogan. And the slogan was, be the blessing. Be the blessing. And, and in, 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 uh, you know, in harmony with what we've been saying all along was we don't want to build a building just to build a building. We don't want to just fill in the gaps of what the last generation you know, kind of got was doing and trying to get started here. We want to be in our community. So if, if we're going to expand our building, we want to do so in a way that will be a blessing to the community, not just something where we can enjoy it more. It's how, what is something that will be usable? And so that's rolling around in my mind because <laughs> now we've launched a fundraising campaign to be a blessing. We are asking people to give a lot of, a lot of, I mean, we're talking a, a lot of money because we live in Southern California where it costs a lot of money just to add one square foot to anything. It's, but we want, again, we feel like we have been blessed. We are being blessed by God. For what reason? 
as um, who was it um, last night? John was talking. What is the body for? What is the body for? To enjoy the fact that they're a part of the body? To say, wow, look at my son's hand? Mm-hmm. No. It's to serve. To be the body of Christ to the people around us. And so, but, but we struggle with that. How do we, if you will, justify <laughs> taking so much money from people? Motivating them to give up so much in order to just have a building. No, it's more than that. That's boy, it's it's hard to find that that balance. Now, I I wonder though. Let's bring it down a few notches here. How many of you here uh, own, or at least have a loan with a bank for the place where you live? Maybe you own your house. Or in the process, you know, like like us, we're on a thirty-year mortgage. Right? <laughs> All right. When you did that, when you set that up, when you bought your house, did you think, okay, uh, I, you know, one of the things that, that I want to have as a part of our house is we want to be sure that we have a, a, a space where we can have groups in. Did you think about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people just think about, oh, what comfort is this going to give me? What view is this going to give me? Uh, what is this going to look like? How can I show off my wealth, if you will? But, I, you know, I think a lot of us, we're thinking, how can I use this? How will this be functional for my family? How will this be functional for my church family? How will this be something that can, you know, be a, a, a positive contribution to our community? Does that ring a bell with anyone? I, every time I spend a good bit of money buying a car, paying for kids' education, <laughs> I think about these kind of things. Uh, I hope all of us are. Anyway, we've got to move on. We've got to move on. So, I want to get to Solomon. Because here's what I see. For years, and I, I taught the, uh, the freshman uh, survey of the Old Testament course here, where you, you, know, you go through the whole Old Testament. For years, I taught a whole bunch on David, and maybe, you know, I wanted to get Solomon in, but if David took too long, well, you can do Solomon in about ten minutes and then move on to <laughs> the rest of the kings and, you know, get to those grand prophets. And so David is a great rags-to-riches story about someone, you know, he comes from out in the countryside somewhere, this little town of Bethlehem, how dear, you know, how still we see thee lie. And, and he, he's the, 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 what, number seven or eight son of this family. Talk about someone who can be ignored, right? He's just a little brother. But he rises up to become this fantastic, great, noble leader of God's people. We love that story. That's the good American story. You know, someone who goes from being nothing to being the something, right? But a lot of the students that I have now, and I've always had, a lot of us in this country are now people who didn't go from rags to riches. We were born that way. And so I, I realized several years ago, oh, we are more like Solomon. Our society is more like the age of Solomon than the age of David. If you want to go back, you know, to the 
19th century, maybe we can talk about being David kind of society. But now, especially since World War II, we've become much more a Solomon type of society. And that poses different challenges. And and I think we need to talk about those. Now, we, we know what happens with Solomon. Solomon's story is 11 chapters long. We wish they would have done it the way they do it in Chronicles and only tell the first 10 chapters. Right? Because it's, this is the story of, of a young guy who lives all his life and he's healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's the wisest man we ever lived. You know, we have the, the book of Proverbs. We have the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? There's someone to admire. But in 1 Kings, then you go to chapter 11. And you go, wow, somebody just took a left turn in their life. Because you go from someone who's known for their wisdom, known for the grand things they're doing, building a great place to worship, and then what you run into? Someone who's worshiping other gods. Where did that come from? And then if you you go a little bit more, you realize, hmm, not everybody loves this guy. For some people, he's just the taskmaster. He's the one putting things down heavy upon us. And so, I, boy, here, here's a college-level label for someone. I've got to get something better than this. He becomes an oppressive accommodationist. I thought about accommodating oppressor. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. I'll show you what I, what I mean uh, by that. But again, we, I think, are more in the, not rags to riches group, but in the riches to, what do we do with our riches group? All right, I mean, just think about some of the things um, in my own lifetime, all right? I I think back just to, to, to 50 years ago, 1968, all right? I can... Now so I can remember 50 and more years ago. So what did we have 50 years ago, 1968, uh, in, in my family? Um, if we took a vacation back then, it was to see grandparents. If we went anyplace else, it was a day trip to a state park. But we did not, we didn't go to Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, Europe, Asia. No. Nobody I knew did that. Nobody who lived in my community did that. Nobody who went to the churches I went to did that. That's something only the few privileged got to do 50 years ago. 50 years ago, my my family had just bought our second car. Okay, so now my parents had two cars, that which was really helpful since there were, since my dad was uh, going to, to graduate school and working, teaching full time, and my mom had four kids to raise. So it's a good thing they got a second car. Now, like the first car, this car did not have air conditioning. It did have a heater. The really cool thing about this car is it had not only an AM radio, but also could pick up FM station. <laughs> Yeah, both AM and FM. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, right at the end of that year, we, we had a, it was about a 23-inch black and white television set that rolled on this 
stand. And, and my sister, who was only, what, just turned 10, she was rolling that from one room to the other, and uh-oh, it hit a, a, a little bump and fell over. So we got our first color TV set. <laughs> As we I've loved my sister ever since. <laughs> So, first color TVs. Oh, and this TV set, it picked up all four channels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were, we were living high on that hog now. All right. Uh, I remember whenever we had, uh, and being little kids, we loved to run, play, fall down, tackle each other. I would get holes in my jeans. What do you do? Go buy some. My mom, who hated to sew, I didn't know this at the time, but she hated sewing, but she would sew patches, you know, American flag, uh, Superman, something, over the holes in my the knees. It's just the way we did it. I had two pairs of jeans, both of them with both knees patched after not too long. Now, that was typical. That's the way we made it. Uh, we went out to eat once a month. And by out, I mean a sit-down restaurant on a Sunday, once a month. One other time a month, we would go to a fast food restaurant. Boy, my family now, that's every Sunday. <laughs> Whereas it used to be, Sunday was the big dinner at home day. Um, we would have the, the newspaper thrown at our doorstep every morning. At least twice, maybe three times a week, the milk would be delivered to the front doorstep as well. Oh, that was a lecture. So that's the way it was 50 years ago. Now, wow. Anybody not have air conditioning in your car? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody not have radio? We, we, we're, we're past the days of, uh, what, eight tracks. My parents skipped eight tracks. I can kind of track my parents, you know, increasing wealth by what gadgets they got in their cars time to time to time. Uh, yeah. But I wouldn't say that they are affluent. But certainly, we're better off. Everyone is better off now. The average is much higher now than it was 50 years ago. We, as a society, have more. And that's reflected in our churches, too. Yeah. I mean, how many of you can remember the day when they actually put in a sound system in your church building for the first time? Boy, preachers have loved that. Not to mention, I mean, now it's what? Audio and visual. With, in some churches, little light shows going and all sorts of things. Yeah, it's... Uh, one of the arguments back in those days was, is it okay to have stained glass? Oh no, that's pretentious. That's obnoxious to have stained glass. Oh my goodness. Um, how many of you, when you were, we did not have a youth group. Much less a youth minister. Right? That came a little bit later. Now we have youth groups and we have children's worship and those sorts of things have changed. We used to have one minister and one minister only. And boy, he did it all. Right? Our church right now, we have four. 
Things have changed. We can afford more. Are we doing any better? That's one of the things that goes around in my head. Are we doing better? But we can afford more. Okay? So things have changed. We are more in a Solomon type of society than a David society. So again, new challenges, different challenges. So what I thought I'd do is, is let's, let's look at a few things, just really a couple of things from the story of Solomon which are pointing him in the right direction, even though sadly he doesn't end up going in the right direction in the end. I, I have this strong hunch that God made sure that these things are in Solomon's story because you would know the whole story and you could see where Solomon's not listening. So that if you find yourself in the same situation that Solomon, Solomon was in, if you will listen to these things where he didn't, you will end up better than he did. Alright? That, that's, that's kind of my working assumption here. So here's just a couple of things that, that I get from the story of Solomon. The first one is from 1 Kings chapter 3, right after Solomon has fully become king. All right, he's, he's gotten on the throne. There was a little bit of unrest about whether he should be the king or some other son of David, but ends up Solomon getting it. The very next thing that happens is Solomon is tired, so he goes and lays down. And while he's asleep, he has a dream. And in the dream, God starts off and says, Solomon! Maybe a deeper voice. <laughs> All of yeah. Ask what I will give you. All right, so if you follow the passage then, on down through there, in 1 Kings 3, and look to see how they use the word, how the, the word give comes up. Because God says, ask what I will give you. And so Solomon starts talking, oh yeah, you've done the great things for David, you've you know, uh, brought him up and told him what he needs to do. Now, what I want you to give me is a hearing heart. A hearing heart. Uh, I think some of the translations say an understanding mind, something like that. But it's literally a hearing heart. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, first of all, a heart is not just the thing that pumps your blood. And it's not just the thing where your emotions are. In their minds, in their perception, the heart is where you thought. Remember how it says, uh, as Jesus was growing up, that Mary was pondering these things in her heart. Right? So the heart is, rather than the brain, it was the heart that did the thing. So what does it mean to have a hearing heart? What does the heart need to hear? What does it need to listen to? And in, in, in looking at this, if you just look to see all the things that, that people are told to hear, 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 two things stand out. Two things stand out. Number one, Hear the word of the Lord. Over and over again. Hear the word of the Lord. Think about what is the greatest commandment. What the Israelites call the Shema. The hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Right. So number one, hear. Hear the word of the Lord. The prophets, over and over again, to the kings, are saying, hear the word of the Lord. When Saul is, you know, is uh, uh, rebuked, it's because he's not hearing what God is telling him to do. Okay, so that's number one. So Solomon, if you want to have a hearing heart, number one, listen to God. Do what He says. 
But number two, if you're going to be a good king who has a heart who hears, you're going to hear when people cry out for help. You're going to hear when people are being oppressed. You're going to hear when people are being taken advantage of. You're going to hear when they're not, when they don't have the food and the shelter that they need. And they come to you asking for help when they've been wronged in some way. And they come to you saying, please help me. You're going to hear them. Because that's what God does. God hears prayers. Kings should do the same. So in asking for a hearing heart, that's what he's asking for. And God says, okay, I will give you, I will give you a wise and discerning heart. What do you have to discern? Well, it's not just a matter of knowing what the truth is, you know, knowing what, what God, how to interpret Scripture or whatever. It's also about being discerning in order to be able to judge, in order to, to know whether a complaint is legit or whether it's, you know, a manipulative thing. Wise and discerning. And how to, to deal with that. The story of the two women arguing over the, you know, whose child is alive comes right after this. That requires wisdom and discernment to know who is telling the truth here, right? And then he says also, you didn't ask for it, but particularly because you didn't ask for it, I'm also going to give you wealth and honor and long life. Okay? So those are the things God says he's, he's giving. Boy, here we are. We're in a much better situation than our grandparents were. We have many more things. We have many more opportunities. Much more ability. Do we have hearing hearts? That's something to think about. Now the second thing. Wait. Go back one. Here we go. Toward the end of the story of Solomon, one of the famous things that comes up is a visit from the Queen of Sheba. She, she says that she's heard all of these wonderful things about Solomon, about how wise he is, and she's come to find out for herself. Is he really as smart as, as they say? So she comes, she talks, she asks questions, she listens, and then she goes, wow, you know, what I heard isn't even half of what the truth is here. This guy is amazing. Okay? Now, let's, let's look at how this ends, though. I just love the way this... Uh, her statement, her, her comment about Solomon ends. Uh, in in uh, 1 Kings 10, she says, How happy must your officials be who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. Not for you, but for Israel. Because God loves Israel so much. He has made you king. And we think, oh, period, right there, huh? No, he's, she's not finished yet. He has made you king to do justice and righteousness. In other words, that's what God wants done here. And He has blessed you so that you're able to do justice and righteousness for others. Wow. Is that why we as a society are so much better off? Is it because God wants to use us to do justice and righteousness 
throughout the world. Now there's a concept for you. Uh, I'm not going to get into politics. Something to think about. But it starts in our own communities. If within your community you are one of the better off people, why? Why has God put you in that socio-economic position? Why has God made it so that Pepperdine has this location with these facilities? Is it so certain people you know, in this nonprofit organization can make more money? Or is there something we are supposed to be doing for God and His kingdom here? See, this is something in, in my professional life we wrestle with all the time. Now let me just show you how this idea comes up over and over again. A couple of other places. One, go back to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, we're, we're getting into approaching Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, now before I you know, show you what I, uh, what I intend to do here, let's, let's talk about what is it that Abraham is all about. And he says, the last thing he says is, I have chosen him. I've chosen Abraham. We know that. Right? Abraham is chosen. His descendants are the chosen people. What does that mean? I have chosen him so that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and righteous. That's what it means to be the chosen people. Is to become people who do justice and righteousness. And so if you want to talk about being chosen, then you better be doing what is just and righteous. Otherwise, you don't understand your selection. It's like telling a, a professional baseball player, why, you, why have you been picked for this team? So that you can have a great salary and live wherever you want to, right? No, because you're going to play for this team. You're going to help us win games. Well, the game that we are in is the game of justice and righteousness. And the more we do that, the more we're doing what we're chosen to do. Okay? Or here's another one having to do with kings and also having to do with our theme for this week uh, in Isaiah 11. Okay? Turn over there to Isaiah chapter 11. Pretty famous passage about the stump of Jesse. Obviously about the, you know, the, the, the uh, line of David. So here we are a couple of centuries later after Solomon, but same line. And Isaiah says, a shoot, does this sound familiar? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And the Spirit, the Spirit, we're talking about being a Spirit-filled people this week. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge just by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So when the king of Israel is doing what the king of Israel is supposed to do, when Jesus fully fulfills His role as Messiah, as Son of David, He does so when He does justice and righteousness. Justice for the poor. Righteousness for the need. 
That's the job. That's your role in the game if you have been blessed. You need to remember that. Right, so you see this in Solomon and repeat it. It's just a part of what it is to be an Israelite. And the king, as the head of the Israelites, is supposed to be the premier example. Alright. So what happened with Solomon? Why do we have 1 Kings chapter 11? Where did he go wrong? Where did he turn off the way that he was supposed to be following? And in the backs of our minds, we've got to be asking, do we run the risk of making the same wrong turn? Okay. So what happens? Two, two things. One is an explicit uh, what? charge, accusation against him. And one is implicit. Okay. So the, the, the explicit one is, make it very clear in 1 Kings 11, uh, he started worshiping other gods. Why? Women. Well, it's always the women. It's always fault. the women. <laughs> always, yeah. Because his wives turned his heart after their gods. He married uh, a whole bunch, hundreds of women, it says. And some of them came from other countries where they worshiped other gods, and they turned his heart. It wasn't inevitable. It's not as if he didn't stand a chance. Right. Yeah. But still. Okay? So, but it, it's that his heart, God says, your heart has turned after other gods. Okay? Wow. How did that happen? With all the ways that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has blessed him, since birth. And now after so many years, he said, ah, yeah, God may have had a partial hand in this. I, I think these other gods deserve some credit too. Where did that come from? How, how, you know, was this just a quick 90 degree turn? I don't think so. I think it's just, you know, he wasn't paying attention at the will and he kept just sliding a little bit farther and farther until finally... He's not on the same road anymore. And I, we'll come back around to this, but I, I wonder about the same thing for us. The second thing is, uh, he became oppressive. Remember, right after Solomon, even kind of by the end of his reign, this is starting to happen, is where you have the breakup of Israel into two countries. And it's, it's kind of, you know, for a while it kind of puzzled me, but here it is. When the northern tribes pull away from Jerusalem, their reason is not that Jerusalem has started having the worship of other gods. <coughs> no. It's that the king has put this heavy yoke upon us, and we want to know whether you, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, are you going to keep up that policy, or are you going to let up a bit? And what does Rehoboam say? You think he was tough? I'll, you know, I'm going to be tougher than my old man, right? Because in his mind, being having might is more important than being right. And what Solomon had taught him, I think, is if he ever anyway. So that, that, that's where you get the oppressive side of him, and it talks about how uh, some. Uh, Scholars have pointed out in commentaries, if you look, when they built the temple, it talks about how they used, they had what they called corvée or conscripted laborers. 
But there, it was Canaanites. When you get here to chapter 11, it's Israelites. Yeah, and so, it, and they say, notice also it looks like he's not using any laborers, any workers from his own tribe, Judah, it's from the others. So he's lifting up his tribe above the others and saying, you know, this is what you got to do for the good of the nation, right? But think about it. If every, what, three years or something, you've got to give, give up some of your farm workers in order to go build some other building, construct some ridge or something over here, that's going to hurt uh, you know, their home. They're doing it over and over, and Rehoboam said, I'm going to do it more. But why is Solomon doing it? Boy, I wish they would tell us. Because it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big question, I, it, just to, to know how he went from one way of thinking about it uh, to another. Now, before we, we kind of answer those questions, though, um, let's do this. When you, you look at the marriages that Solomon had with all these women, some, many of them from other countries, usually the way people explain that is, well, yeah, kings had lots of wives, but it wasn't because of you know, strong, strong sexual desire. It's business. Right? You're, you're making treaties. You're creating alliances with other countries. That's going to strengthen your nation. You're not just going it alone. I mean, Israel is not a big country, folks. Less than a million people, for sure. You know, it's kind of like a Central American country compared to the U.S. today. Okay, so you're trying to strengthen yourself. How do you do that? Strong alliances. That's what he's doing. So this is for the good of the country, right? He's doing things to help the country, but he ends up not helping the country because of the way he you know, starts thinking about these things, the way he starts accommodating to those that he has made alliances with. There, there's the problem. He didn't toe that line that he was supposed to. So in and of itself, having his alliances is not bad. But the way that they got played out was. Similarly, the heavy yoke, okay, you're building things up. You're, you're working on the infrastructure of your country. That's usually a good thing. Providing more services. But at what cost? Instead of taxes, you're taking more and more people to do the work. Finding that balance is a hard thing. And it looks like here that he's willing to make life miserable for all these other tribes, all in the name of helping the nation, but no. Okay. Where's that wisdom? Where's that wisdom? Okay. So, before we kind of get around to wrapping this up, I also want us to be aware of how Jesus talks about this. Okay? So here's Solomon dealing with wealth building up alliances, there's got to be trade and other things, building up wealth and building up the power of Israel, and yet what? Power can corrupt. Wealth can corrupt, and it does here. Now usually when we think of at least, maybe I say we, I, uh, seems like I think about wealth 
What does Jesus say about wealth? First thing that pops into my mind is you know, a wealthy person can't go through the eye of the needle. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, go and sell all you have. All right? But notice, there's Jesus actually, if you see, read everything, is a bit more balanced than that. Because I, I think, think about, yeah, you, you have the rich young ruler, go and sell all you have, and this guy's sad because he has a lot. But there's also the parable of the talent. Where it says that the master has three servants, gives one five, one two, one one, goes away for a while, he comes back. When he comes back, he doesn't turn to the guy that he gave five talents to, it, and he doesn't say to them, uh, so those five talents, you went and you, you used that, shared that with the, with, the, with the poor, right? You took care of their needs, right? That's what you're supposed to do whenever you get blessed, right? You're supposed to just give it all away. That, he says, no. The guy with the five talents took the five talents and he invested it or whatever, he used it and ended up with ten. See? Now he has more to work with. And Jesus in here says, to everyone who has, more will be given. Wow. I haven't heard many sermons on that. <laughs> I think that's because the, the, there's always a follow-up question, which is, if you're given more, what are you supposed to do with that? Simply make more? Like the rich fool who had a bumper crop one year and said, wow, I, with all of this, I think I'll just build more barns. I can just store it up. I'll never have to work again. You know, at some point, you have to become the blessing. All right? to think about. Also about power. Notice what Jesus says about power. Uh, in, uh, in Luke 4, early in Jesus' ministry, he goes into the synagogue of his hometown and he reads from Isaiah a passage about the Messiah. And at the end of it, he says, today this is fulfilled. Again, he brings up the Spirit of the Lord. It's on me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. Help to those who are downtrodden. Right? To declare the year of the Lord's favor. To announce it to those who are suffering. Relief is on its way. Okay? That's what those in power are supposed to do. That's why we elect the officials that we do. They always promise some sort of relief. Right? And we try to discern which one is actually going to be able to do that. That's, but that's what you expect. That's what people with power are supposed to do. Matthew 20. Here's where Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, Hey, uh, James and John, uh, we're trying to decide which one of us is going to get to sit on your right hand and which on the left. And Jesus says, No, no, that's not the way to think about power here. Power in, in my kingdom is about serving others. You are being empowered not to lord over, but to get down in and serve. That's what the, the, the power of the Spirit does for you. It empowers you to serve. Okay? Interesting. So then, here are just some closing questions for us. In, in the story of Solomon, in that dream early on in his career, 
God says, what can I give you? And he says, give me a hearing heart. Somewhere along the way, Solomon stopped listening. The number one thing to do is hear the word of the Lord. And somewhere along the way, he started listening to other voices. Now, that they, they talk about his multiple wives turning his heart. That means he's listening. And it's not just because you're not supposed to listen to women, okay, guys? But it's because they're, what they're saying is, turn to other gods. What they're saying is, give credit to other powers for what is happening here. So I, I say, are there voices that we listen to that hinder us from hearing the voice of God? And I have up here, uh, money. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sometimes money talks so loudly, it drowns out the voice of God. Now, it shouldn't. I should say, we, we let, we focus in on that. If there's all these voices going, it's interesting how you have to sort of choose one. So which one? Boy, we could spend all day talking about how many decisions are made and explained for good noble reasons, but if you scratch very far into the surface, you realize, oh, this is going to be the cheaper way to go, this is going to bring us in more money, and that's really why we're doing it. So, I always hate when that comes up. That's very, very common. Now, I have the Hollywood sign up here. Some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I watched the Oscars last month, yeah, I know what he's talking about. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, how do the things that we watch on television, in movies. What messages are they putting out there 24-7 in our country, in our world? And do we listen to them at the expense of listening to God? Sometimes we do. We need to be, you know, reflective enough, self-aware enough to resist that. Okay? How about this? We're supposed to be doing justice and righteousness. I, I, I brought this up with my wife, Jan. And I said, Jan, how often do you feel like that you know, there are things that you want to do that, that are good, but you feel like you have to do certain things like have a job, etc., etc., in order to be able to do some good things, but you get so busy. I said, you know, how many times do you feel like you get so busy doing the things that will enable you to do good that you never have the time to do good. See, I, I worry about that with my congregation. Are we going to be so busy raising money in order to build, a, you know, expand our building that we'll never get around to helping the neighborhood? And, and we've started, as we're just in the very, very beginning of money raising, we are already doing things to reach out into our community. That's where the other elders, I was gone last semester, all these other elders, boy, they have really been thinking through this about how this is not about raising money, this is about blessing others. That's the real focus here. And if it turns out we never get enough money for the building, we're still going to have better programs. It's as simple as that. Okay? Yeah, but how often... Do we know, oh yeah, I need to be doing justice and righteousness. But before we can get to that point, 
We've got to get all, the, all of our ducks in a row. Boy, the ducks never stay in the rows, it seems. Uh, I, I heard something yesterday that made me think about this. Where did I write this? Oh, yeah. Um, in, the, in Elkins Auditorium yesterday afternoon, Jay Bills and Sally Gary were talking. And, and Jay mentioned, well, or they, they showed a, a clip from a guy over at Fuller. And one of the things he said there, I wrote down, he says, we think once we get our act together, then we can get involved in missions. And the deal is, we never get our act together. And so we never get involved. We've got to be careful about that. Because we're supposed to be about the business of doing justice and righteousness. Okay? And then, do we have a heart for God? Or do we have a heart for other gods? Do we give others credit for what really... Is God's doing? Yeah. Is it? Boy, you can go on and on and on with these things. Think of all the stuff, all the commercials that we see. This will improve your life. This will give you security. This will make your life fulfilling. If you'll just follow this diet, if you will just use this financial planning strategy, if you will just follow this philosophy, this psychological, you know, whatever. On and on we go. Self-help books out the wazoo. Who gets the credit then when our lives are better? Uh, uh, This one I find so ironic. The the comic strip on the right. Here's a little angel talking to God. I don't know if you can see this. But the little angel says, Hey, come on! You've got to believe in yourself! Tell you how many times I see in uh, or, or I hear in songs, I hear in, in productions that are done on this campus, saying, "Oh, you're you're not feeling good. Well, you just got to believe in yourself. You're struggling through something. You just got to believe in yourself. No, you got to believe in what God can do through you. That's our message. That's our message." So, we're talking this week about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. We live in a time, at least relatively, especially relative to my parents, my grandparents, we are better off. We have more comforts. We can go more places. But are we for the right reasons? So in our church assemblies, in our church buildings, in our church programs, in our homes, in the way that we use our money, in the way that we use our time, are we concerned about filling the earth with the knowledge of the Lord? Or are we concerned about filling our time with what's fun or what's comfortable or well, I said we were going to make this a conversation. We have 25 seconds. <laughs> but let's go overboard. Let's go over time. Any, I, want, I want to get some responses. I've seen a lot of people nodding their heads and stuff. What other thoughts are coming up with you with this? I, I feel like this is a very common challenge these days. What do you think?
We need to be still enough to listen. To what? To listen to God. We need to be still, still. still enough. We're everybody's so busy. We, and we've got to stay busy. To keep up. Yeah. I feel like I was relating some of you about the church needing to grow kind of thing, but trying to remember that that's to serve the community. And I really loved something we did. At, I go to downtown church in, in, uh, in Searcy, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And we just, we, we needed to grow. We were, we were busting the scene. We had 30 kids in a class kind of thing and just needed to spread out. And so we had a campaign called Room to Grow. And one of our passions was to have spaces for kids with um, ADD or um, autism or things like that to have a quiet space for them to go and not be so overstimulated. That was one of our passions. And so with the parable of the talents idea, one Sunday they actually passed out money instead of taking up money. And we were able to take a little bit of what we might need to like produce a product that like if I'm good at making birdhouses or I'm good at singing or I'm good at knitting or whatever it is, then I could buy what I needed and then I would mix that product and sell it and then I would bring back what I earned in a, in a month and we all brought back what we had earned. And I mean, it was crazy the number of different projects that people did. I mean, just pages and pages on my website because on the website are pages and pages of things people were doing and we bought back $50,000 or something huge. And it was just neat to watch people use their talents to bless the church so that we could bless the community with, in this particular way. So I just thought that was a cool mm-hmm. example of that. Wonderful, wonderful. So where or what is our community? It seems to me that a small community or a larger community, especially in America, superpower country, I think not just our small you know, community, but also well, think about all international. Yeah, I, I think we have communities at different levels. I, you know, we have a family, that's a community. We have our neighborhood, that's a community. We have our church, that's a community. We have our state, and on and on we go. Yeah. Especially America. But, but something like America, yeah. Because we, we're doing business. We're, you know, we're traveling to all these places. That is part of our community. We need to be thinking about, as Christians, what role do we have in that community? When you started a big project like extending the church or whatever it could be, it's so important not to get distracted because you need to focus on the cohesiveness. Don't get distracted. This, this is a long project. Yeah. In the movies, it gets built within about 10 minutes, you know, and then you go on the rest of the movie. No, this takes a long time. Okay, people need to go, others need to come in. Thank you so much for your attention. And I would love to talk to you know, anyone with other ideas and comments. Just, again, this is something that's boiling up over uh, all the time. Thank you so much. Thank you.